Hello, and welcome to Workle's Happiness Podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take to get happier. I'm delighted to be joined on this edition of the Workal Happiness podcast by Noella Kusaris uh, Masunka. Now, many of you will know her as Noella. She's a famous model, also uh, an incredible philanthropist, an entrepreneur, and a mother to boot. Uh, Noella, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. Uh, hi, uh, how are you, Mark? Thank you for having me. And we're really excited to hear your story because it's the most incredible story. And it will be an inspiration to everybody who's going to listen to this podcast. So if we can start, Noella, with your childhood. You were born in the um, Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, so tell us about those early years and then tell us about what happened to you. So I was born in the in Democratic Republic of Congo. My father tragically passed away when I was five uh, years old only. And as my mom didn't have the means to support me, she was forced to send me to live with relatives in Europe. It was a very difficult childhood being away from my family and especially my mother. I was the only child from my mom and dad who I had very little contact. I understood even as a young girl, young woman, the incredible gift that is access to strong education. So I applied myself to my studies and learned as much as I could do. And I went back to see my mother after 13 years, so at a crucial time when I was 18. And, and so tell us about those school years. Where, where did you go to live? I was in Belgium, a few years in Belgium, and then uh, I was sent to another relative in Switzerland. When you say Switzerland, people think it's a rich family, not at all. <laughs> and when you, you went to school, were you, were, you, um, were you academic? Did you work hard at your schoolwork? Yes, I was very academic because, you know, like I was saying, you don't have your mum, you don't have your dad. Um, you're living with families, but they're kind of a little bit strangers to you. So I just put, my, I just put all my energy in, um, in my studies and because I wanted to make sure that one day I'd be able to look after my mother because she, she did a sacrifice to send me away. And, and tell me, what, what are your memories now of leaving the, the DRC to go and live in Belgium and then Switzerland? My memories are very sad because I think at five years old, you don't understand what death means. So you don't know what exactly means that actually your dad, your dad is dead. He will never come back. And all of the sudden you're separated with your mother. So when I think about all of that, I always think, um, I always have, a, I try to not think about it because I'm a positive person and I don't like to, to complain about my childhood. I'm more someone that keep going and keep moving and, and take a challenge after one, you know? But um, I always say to my kids that they're very lucky to have a mom and dad. And that's the most important thing in the world because it's, um, this is your base and the love that you can receive from your parents. And that's the reason I give so much into my kids because I had this like all my life to not have a, 
the, the, this love, this affection, where you can put your head and cry or laugh with, with to have this complicity. When you were in, in school in Belgium and in, in Switzerland, what, what do you remember about your schooling? Were you very sporty? Uh, did you get on with the other kids there? Were you uh, head girl? I mean, tell us a bit about your life at school. I was very sporty, yes, but um, I was very good at sport. But the thing is, um, I was a tomboy, actually. I was a tomboy for many, many years. I still have this side of being introvert, but I was a tomboy. I was not opening myself to a lot of people. It was a tough, tough childhood. And uh, I do think because my aunties that I used to live as only boys, so for them, they didn't have the psychology to have a girl. So I was really like a boy. And, and there's a reason I have this side on me that is very, that's very tough. And it, the experience must have made you very resilient, Noella. Uh, yes, it makes you very resilient. It makes you very strong. It makes you very determined. And you know you fall down. You don't have a lot to, you, you have yourself to go pick up, pick up yourself. And when I went to see my mum when I was 18 and, and seeing her living in such poor condition, in, in such poor houses and with everything that was going around her, that was another shock in my life. And, uh, but it was a big wake up. It was like, for sure, I will work hard and, and I want to look after my mother and give her um, everything that I could do in my life. And, and so in terms of um, work, when you were at school, did you have any idea about what you wanted to do when you finished your education? I think I wanted to become uh, always a doctor or a surgeon. I was very academic, so I was always wanted. Um, I always wanted to really be a high level, to be a high level job because I have this feeling that I wanted to help my mum. But when I go back at eighteen, it's not only seeing my mother make me sad; it's seeing how many the level of poverty of such an amazing and beautiful potential country and seeing so many children out of school, so many girls uh, living in orphanage and, and boys. And I was like, it could be my story. And I want to make sure that I will give back to my country. And, and I mean, we'll go on to talk about that because you've set up uh, the Malika Foundation. Uh, and Malika obviously means angel. Um, and uh, you've done great work there. But before we talk about that, I just want to ask you a question that I suspect lots of the listeners will be thinking. How do you become a model? I mean, clearly you were at, at, uh, uh, at school and you were doing incredibly well academically. As you said, you probably wanted to be a doctor and you wanted to do something to help. So how was it, how did it come about that you became a model? So for my tomboy age, I've become this girl that was, that was becoming more and more feminine, actually. And uh, having my hair growing, dressing in a different style. A lot of people were stopping me in the street. Like, you, have an amazing, you have a beautiful face. You should really do modeling. And I was like, I cannot really do modeling because I have to study. And that's a promise I did to myself and to my mom. And, uh, but more and more people were stopping me. And uh, my, I came in London because I wanted to learn English. How old were you at this time, Noella? Oh, I cannot remember all these age numbers. <laughs> but you know, I came to London, uh, 
probably in the 20s. And my friends enter me in a competition, agent provocateur. They said, there's this competition, you should really do it. And uh, I was one of the winners of the, the campaign. And I was the only black woman being uh, chosen for this campaign. And uh, it was the beginning, the beginning of my career between London and New York. And was that a surprise to you or, or were you, I mean, how did you feel about that? I grew up with a lot of, uh, of uh, uh, with a lack of confidence in myself, in my look because the way I was a tomboy. But um, having bit by bit my, my look and that people were seeing actually were booking me for how I look because at this time when you were doing modeling, it's not like now, now they want more story. They want, they want to know who you are, what you're doing and etc. But at this time, it was like more we book here, we book her because, of course, when you know a client, they book you more and more because you are nice, you arrive on time. But at the first thing is they look first at your picture and you look. I was, uh, I was surprised. I was surprised to have the first campaign. I was surprised to even have my second campaign, my third campaign. I was surprised that an agency in New York wanted me and um, even more surprised that I could have a living from it. So you were around 20 as you say and you entered this competition and you did really well and you went on the books of an agency as a consequence and then people started to see your portfolio and you started to get hired so where were you living then did you were you living in London yes I was living in London I was uh, living in between London and then in New York because um, it was the two main towns I was working and, and then tell us what it's like to be a, a model. What, what do you do? What does a, a normal, if there is such a thing, modelling day look like? Modelling day is never the same because you work uh, in different cities, in different locations, either in a studio, either on outdoor shoot. You work with different people. Every time is different people, a different photographer, makeup artist, hairstylist, stylist, designers and the setup and different magazine or brand. So there's no one single day. And that's the beauty of modeling. You meet different people, you travel to different places and you, you discover a completely different world. You wear these amazing clothes, having this, you are like a different character. Every time I was going to a job, I was just adapting myself to what they wanted and expecting from me. So you entering like in a different personality, different mode. And, and tell us what, what are the hardest things and what are the best things about being a model? Hard thing, I would say it's not easy to travel all the time. It's hard to be rejected uh, because you have a lot of rejection in modeling. You sometimes you got some job and sometimes you don't get some jobs. And now modeling is more diversified, but before it was tough because for black girls, you, you were quite rejected a lot of times. And the other side, you didn't, you didn't have as much as opportunity as now, and still the opportunity now are good, but they're not, they should be even another level. And the other side is the, un, the unknown. You never know how long your career will last. You never know, you have to be very careful with your money because you are the one earning the money and you have to, you can work very well for two, three months and don't work for three, four months. So you really need to manage well your money to have good saving. And, and then what are, the, what are the good things? What are the things you most enjoy about it? 
is to work with different people, different projects. And I do like some, I did like the traveling too, because you dif- discover a new city, different countries. It's a world full of, uh, of surprise. And people are, are interesting. And, and so during the, the COVID lockdown, that must have made working difficult. Oh, yes. And this is an industry that has been really affected from the, the photographer, the makeup artist, the designer, to the events, to, 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 to catering. Uh, it's, a, it's a business that employs millions of people a year. And uh, so many people lost their job. So many people have been affected. So many business has been shut down. It's very, it's very sad. And, and people, we are at, um, at a reset. From the Telegraph, they're saying 12% of people will go back to their habit in terms of, of consuming. So it's an, in, it's an industry that needs to rethink what's going to be the next few years because people don't consume as much as they used to do before, because we're all in lockdown. And people aren't dressing up to go out anymore. And so it has, as you exactly. say. There is, there's no event, there's less photo shoot, um, only the strict minimum photo shoot happening. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, very, it's very scary, actually. I'm very lucky because I'm at another stage of my life where modeling is not my resources of 100%. But I see a lot of um, friends that I know that are still doing modeling 100% and they lost so many jobs and so many campaigns and they have very low income coming. I feel it's, it's a tough time, but it's a tough time for everyone. And this is a sacrifice we have to do for, for health and for the safety of everybody. And, and before I ask you, Noel, about how you have diversified and uh, become entrepreneurial and done other things. Um, I just want to ask you this on behalf of boys and girls listening to this who want to go into the modelling world. What advice would you give them as a successful model? I will say it's very important. You know, I went into the modelling world with a baggage. I study. I study business management. I, I study business management, and that's what makes me uh, able to have so many things that I'm doing right now, and even leading Malaika at, on every level. You, you need, before entering the modeling world, you can do, if you're very young, as a part-time job, or really extra, like an extra income. But you really need to, to study. You really need to work hard. You need to have a... a you need to have a career beside it because you never know how long it will last. You never know when it will be over. And secondly, there's a completely new shift in the, in the modeling industry. Magazine covers don't book as much models. Out of 12 covers during the year, maybe four models have been booked. Now it's becoming more um, about the person. A politician woman like Kamala Harris is on the cover, like uh, health workers are on the cover. Now we even have amazing uh, covers from um, different magazines. They put animals, uh, Italian Vogue this month did a completely series about animals. British Vogue completely did a series of covers about the nature. So you have a complete, we are completely in a different um, shift how we sing beauty and power and whose instrument and, 
and who's instrumental to be in front of the cover or being in campaigns. And we're seeing the same thing, what's happening when people are booked for campaigns. You're seeing it's sports people, it's personalities, it's TV presenters. You have such a variety of diverse people, not only uh, from from uh, colors or, or bodies, but really from prof from the professions. And it, and if somebody did want to get into it, would would you recommend the same route as you doing a modeling competition? Is that the best way to? No, that was on. There's not so many modeling competitions. Still, once in a while, there's competition. But I think um, the modeling industry is completely changing too. You know, it, with everything happening and lockdown, so many modeling agencies are struggling. But, you know, you have to believe your passion. I do believe nowadays people don't have only one career. I have some friends, they used to be lawyers or doctors. Now they are beautician. You know, the world is changing. You don't have to be having only one hat. You can have few hats. And I will really advise, follow your dream. If you want to do modeling, why don't you do it for one, two years? Or even five years, go with the flow, go with it. When I started my modeling, I was not earning a lot of money. I used to work in, a, in shops, in restaurants. And when I, my modeling started to take over, I didn't have to do this job. So why not changing? Uh, why not tempting? Life, I'm a risk taker. And I now advise people to, to take risk. In terms of um, your other entrepreneurial uh, ventures, before we talk about your foundation, um, as you said, you now do other things. You're not just modeling. So talk to us about the other things that you're now doing that are offshoots. Uh, of your modeling work? I am a mother, first of all, of two children. So that's the most important thing in my life of JJ and Kara. My son is 10, my daughter is uh, six years old. I, I, I set up Malaika, an organization that is uh, a grassroots organization that, that is focused on education and health programs in the Congo that has four pillars a school that we build and manage it, a community center that we build and manage it. Uh, we build 20 wells and we have a, an agricultural um, field program that we're teaching about organic farming and where the food that we're growing go back to the canteen of the school. And this is these four pillars where you can duplicate in any context. And this year we're gonna launch uh, some technical classes where teach the youth about uh, technical skills like uh, mechanic and electricity. And Noella, let's go back to the to the start of that again. So you went back to see your mum when you were 18. Uh, that inspired you to want to do something. Your foundation, uh, Malika, but, but tell us about where you set it up and the inspiration to do that. I set it up in, um, in, a, in a Congo, in the southeast of the Congo, in a rural village, actually, where there was no water where there was no electricity. I wanted to make sure even children in rural places still have not only education, but have high quality education. In Kalibuka, in the southern east of the Congo, my God, the road were so bad to build the school in order to make the break because we build it in a very ecological way. We needed to build and to in, in order to make a, to build the toilet facilities too at the school, you needed a well, you needed water, and it was no water, there's no water in the village, no electricity. So we needed to build the well. And when we built the well, we saw that 
every day people were walking hours to come to fetch water um, via a well. And that was something that really shocked me. I was like, my God, I just signed up to build a school, but I think I will have to do more. And it's the reason the water program sanitation started. We built over the last um, 13 years, more than 20 wells, impacting 35,000 people. And that's one of the most, um, most programs that I'm mega, mega, mega proud because, and I hope to do over the last five years, maybe 10 more, 10 more wells because it's something that is so in demand that it's make happy people. When I see these mothers, these fathers going to fetch the water and, and not, have, not seeing them walking hours and hours, it gives you, I'm happy for them. And that's the minimum that, uh, that we could have done. And when we built the school, we started only with one building. Now we have more than 10 buildings. We started with 104 girls and now we have 370 girls. We provide a free all encompassing primary and secondary education to 370 girls. Our curriculum includes everything from STEM to coding, to art, music, theater, sport, all taught in French. And they are very good English. We teach English and we offering two nutrition meals a day, usually locally grown, organically produced. And we're creating environmental opportunities, teaching the community members about more sustainable methods. We offer regular free health checkup and keep a close eye on a student well-being. We lost, unfortunately, in the lockdown um, because all our programs were shut down for a few months. We lost three girls, uh, little Esther, little Annie, and little Noella. And it was the most tough time since I started Malaika to lose three girls in less than, than, than four months was tough. And, but it showed you the importance of our work. When everything is open, our school, our community center, we make sure that our students are well. We make sure that our students are fed. We make sure that any problem they have, we bring them to the hospital. We had Esther a few years ago that received, uh, that got a very bad accident on the road. And um, she was not coming at school for a few days and we have a very strict attendance list. Uh, attendance if our kids coming or not. And we went to, our staff went to see at her home what what's happening to her and she was not dying at the home because the parents didn't have any um, any money any resources to bring her to the hospital she was bleeding and um, she got an accident with a motorbike the paps they stuck on the leg she was losing uh, weight and they were trying to to help her with traditional medicine and so we brought her in emergency at the hospital and she stayed nearly six months and we were able to to save her leg and to save her. And Esther is an amazing, beautiful girl. She's now in fourth secondary. She wants to become a doctor. And there's a lot of great story. And a few years ago, again, uh, Miriam, uh, between Christmas and New Year's, the family callers and the time the family callers, Miriam was six years old, same age as my son at this time. And she died between Christmas, New Year, again, when our school is closed, that we could not check the health. She died of malaria and we decided really to emphasize a lot in health. You cannot do education without health. And we built an infirmary, a student health center on her name, Miriam. And we will always have her in our heart. And she's part of, um, of the legacy that she left us to really invest in, uh, in health. 
we think a girl's growing not only physically, but emotionally, full of confidence. They all have dreams. Annie want to become an engineer. Lorian want to become a mathematician. Louise uh, want to become a software engineer. Marceline want to become a tennis player. So they all have big dreams. And we built a tennis, um, a tennis court at our school. And everybody was like, why are you building a tennis court in the middle of a village? And I was like, it's good. Sport is really important. And actually, uh, 16 of our girls have been selected to the provincial uh, tournaments uh, in the Congo, and they all won the, the, the matches. And the two best girls that win everything are from Malaika school, and they will be sent uh, to represent the province at the national level. It kind of shows you that it doesn't matter where you're from. It cannot define you. It's really... We, we, we try to have them growing with values, with to not being stopped by any challenges and to make sure that whatever they do, they do it 100% and trying their best. And it's so good to see these two girls that's gonna represent uh, not only the tennis team, but they're gonna represent their village, their school, their, their teammates. And it's, it's really, really beautiful. And our community center, it's um, built uh, in collaboration with FIFA. We, FIFA was a donor at the school and they were very impressed. And after the World Cup 2010, they decided to put 20 community centers in Africa and they come to us. Uh, we have only two spots left and we love Malaika to work with us. And they came and they fall in love. And, um, and then we built a community center with them. Our community center of literacy, sport, entrepreneurship, health program serving more than 5,000 um, youth and, and, and adults. And we had created a brand called Mama Yama Pendo, an entrepreneurship um, programs. And uh, we teach the mothers to make, um, to make um, accessorize and the accessorize being sold and it bring an income generator to, to the programs and they are being paid. And when we got the pandemic, we made more than 2,000 sewed masks that we distributed all over the villages, different villages. And with the STEM team at the school, with the 3D printers, we make more than 1,500 mask shield that we donated to more than 60 hospitals in Katanga province. So there's a lot of, um, our school is really a leadership school, full of innovation. We have a staff that is really rigorous, that really adapt themselves. We invest a lot in our curriculum, in the training of our teachers, in technology. That's uh, very, very important. And we hope that Malaika, it will be only one Malaika, but we hope that our model will be duplicated in, uh, in different parts of the world. And, and your mum must be incredibly proud of what you've achieved there, Noella. And you know, she's... She's, um, my mom went through so many tough times in her life, but she, when I'm go there, she come with me at the school and in Kalibuka and yeah, she's extremely, she's extremely proud because um, I could stay in London or I could stay in New York, but I decided to, to give back. It's not easy to run a foundation. It's not easy to fundraise. It's a lot of challenges to work in Congo and in Africa. I have challenges every day. And um, you need really, really solid nerve. 
and you need to stick to your vision, to your mission, to really work as a team. And me being the leader, I, I have to cheer up everyone. You know, I, I, I cannot show, yes, I have a lot of tough times, a lot of side times. When the pandemic arrived and we have 40% of donation went down, I was panicking. How are we going to keep paying our staff? How are we going to keep running all the programs? Because it costs $400,000 a year to run everything that we have on the ground. I have nights I didn't sleep, but I wanted to make sure that first we will pay all our staff that they still be able to look after their families. And so only because the, the school and the program were closed, we wanted to make sure that we can still deliver, we can deliver because the food went completely high level price. Uh, the, the, the parents were not able to feed the kids anymore. So when the village went through a tough times, even to get food. So we make sure that every Tuesday and Thursday, we went at some point in villages and via our school, we distributed school uh, um, food and we reached over 7,000 uh, members. So that was a very, a very special moment. And people ask me often, what is the success of Malaika? I will say it's really because we're working very closely with the community. We're working at the grassroots level and the community are the one taking part of everything we're doing. And they are the one protecting Malaika. We are there for them, offering them all the classes at the community center. We are there when there are any problems, we lobby to the government to make the road. 70% of the road has been made. Now I'm lobbying uh, um, really to push hard to get electricity. And already it's kind of um, bringing um, uh, an economical empowerment in a village because they are able to go from the village to go in town to sell their goods. And, and it's a um, big, big, big improvement. And you, you take, I know that you go obviously uh, every year to visit and see the foundation firsthand, but also I understand that you take your children too. Yes, I don't take any salary of Malaika. I go twice a year in the Congo. I don't visit, I will say I work. <laughs> because when I'm there, my day starts like from 7 a.m. to like 10, 11 p.m. Because you have nonstop. I, I, I work with the team very closely. I work in the village to understand what's the problem, how we can better serve them. I have nonstop meetings with teachers, with parents. A lot of, um, you, you need, I have a lot of people coming with me all the time. So it's like a busy, busy time. But one of my proudest moments too is to bring my family, my two kids, because they come every day with me in the village. They see how lucky they are. They choose their own um, <coughs> fundraising that they want to do. Either they bring clothes for their friends in the village, or they bring books, or they decided to that they wanted to do wells, or uh, they buy masters for some of their friends there. And they, it's, I hope, it will be moments like that will always mark uh, the, the life. And, and you mentioned the amount of money you fundraise, which is huge, say $400,000 a year to be able to support the foundation's work. Just tell us about how hard it is to fundraise. It's hard to fundraise because, you know, when, you, when I started 13 years ago, I said, I want to start a foundation working in Congo. People were like, what in Congo? Corruption, uh, wars. Uh, political instability, um, a young woman running a foundation, African woman. It was 
another tool will write a positive story and we don't raise money with um, negative pictures. We want to show empowerment, educational. We want to show that they are our future leaders that are gonna run not only the village, but they're gonna run the country and the continent. And that's the seed that we're putting into education and everything that we're doing. But to fundraise the first year, maybe we fundraised maybe four or $5,000. It was some of my money and some money of the members of the foundation and some friends. Next year, we raised maybe 15, 20,000. The third year, maybe we raised 40 or 50,000. It was tough. The first project we did was to sponsor girls that were abandoned. We were paying the school and the orphanage. And then it become that, no, we have to build our own school. But uh, to fundraise, to build the school and the community center, because the community center, even we built with a certain part with FIFA, but because the demand was so high of the community, the youth, the fathers, the mothers wanted to come to study at the community center, we expanded building another building and we funded with different donors. So the building fundraising was tough. The operational cost, it's, it's tough because people don't understand that to have programs, you need to pay the staff, the teachers, the managers. And then the food program is a huge, 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 huge um, expenses because these kids won't eat at home. They will eat maybe twice a week. So we have to make sure that every morning they have breakfast and they have lunch. So we're feeding, we have 370, 370 students at the school, and we have nearly 40 staff between the school community center. So we're feeding nearly 410 people every day. And you remember, there's no electricity, so you have to cook by, with, with gas. So the gas is expensive. And you keep fundraising and fundraising and stuff. But we've been very lucky because we have a very, we have a lot of loyal donors. And a lot of donors came with me at Malaika. So they're becoming our ambassador and they are the one to not only donating, but asking their family, asking the corporate. We have uh, more than 50% of our donation coming from grant application. We have some corporate and some partnership of fashion that I do with some brands that, uh, either have modeling and ask them to put a certain percentage at Malaika, or we just launch a, we launch a campaign with her, is a renting platform where wow. 15 powerful women donated some of their outfit and some designer donated some outfit. And people are able to, from Vanessa Kingori, Tandy Newton, Natalia Verdianova, Jun Sapong, people are able to rent this outfit and the money goes 100% to Malaika. So this is the kind of partnership uh, we, we're having. But we see in the last few years, brands need to be associated with charities. We, the consumer want to know which, which um, CSR company have or brands. And that's really good. And I know that you're ambitious. So what, what's your, your hope for Malika in, say, 10 or 20 years' time? Oh my God, I will have tears when I see the first girl being graduated, when they be 18. And we're doing a career mentorship program. We're creating a student fund, mean that um, 
when they would be leaving at 18, we don't want them just to go. We want to make sure that we mentor them. We make sure we will help them either to go to technical schools or university. We will have a kind of mentorship for them. So the journey is still long. <laughs> but I'm excited to see what, how they will transform their lives and transform their peers' lives. And I'm very excited of the technical uh, classes that we will add this year at the community center to offer skills to the youth. It's really something close to my heart because when I walk in a village and I see all that more than 85% of the youth don't have a job, don't have any skills, that really break my heart. And it strikes me, uh, Noella, that the work makes you happy. Oh yeah, that's my passion. And you know what? It's, it's my country, it's my blood. I want to see Congo. It has such a sad story over the years, but it's such at the heart of Africa and of the world because the world depends on us in terms of all the minerals that we have going into all uh, your device, laptop, phones, uh, your green cars, the cobalt, the lithium, all of that, 70% come from Congo. But we, the worst, I will say it's the individual, is there, um, it's the youth, and it's how they will adapt themselves in, in the coming years. And that's what makes me looking forward. Africa is rewriting their own story because the new generation wants something else for them. And like in the world, we don't want to depend on politicians. We want to depend on individuals that has vision and that will shake things. And I mean, yours is just the most incredible story. Tell, tell me. Um, if you listen to music, when you listen to music, what piece of music, when you hear it, makes you feel happy? Oh my God, uh, you know, Africa, it's full of music, of art, of culture, of we and Congo. Yesterday, I, a few days ago, I was listening to uh, Idris Alba interview and he was saying that one of his favorite musicians was Franco from Congo. He's a guitarist and an amazing singer. And yes, for me, music is part of my life because it puts you in a good mood. It cheers you up. It's um, sometimes I need to switch music. Sometimes I will listen African music because I need the happiness. But sometimes I do need the calm, and I will listen to classical music. And um, my son plays piano, and I love to listen to him. But he will say, uh, "Mommy, I want to stop piano." And I'm saying, "No way! You're not gonna stop piano." And is, and is there one piece of music, one record, one tune that when you hear it, makes you feel happy? I love Shade. I love Shade. I love Arita Franklin. I love George Benson. Um, uh, yes, I have a lot, of, um, a lot of music, but I love my African music. I love Ali Pupa. Uh, I love Davido, Whiskies. Uh, I love uh, you know song. There's so many great artists that, uh, that that I love, and my music really depends on everywhere. I love Salif Keita. It's um, my music is quite uh, mixed, but depends. I listen music with my mood. <laughs> when I cook, I need I need a very energetical music that cheer me up. When I have a, I read a, I have to read so many because. I read everything going on on Malaika, and sometimes I have report of like twenty pages. Now I'm. I'm reading a report that we're writing um, because we're writing actually um, our toolkit blueprint 
about how you can duplicate it, Malaika model. So it's hundreds of pages. And I'm started, I'm, I think I'm at the 30 page. So before I start to read documents like that, I just put a very big music, big tune, energetical, and I say, okay, I need to be focused on my laptop and read. And I'm bombarded like all of us by, I think I received nearly 140, 150 emails a day and phone calls and Zoom and Skype. And you need to be, you need to have things. And there's a moment where I completely shut down. I shut down my laptop, I shut down my phone. I just want to watch a movie with my kids or a cartoon. My daughter's right now, she's into mermaids. My son is into Harry Potter. My husband is into his football. <laughs> so I try to say, hey, when can I have my space on the front of the TV? <laughs> Noella, thank you ever so much for, for sharing with us your absolutely incredible journey. You know, but I really want to say that people, people see me in the front, but I want to say this is a completely a teamwork. I, the team around Malaika and the team, even the team around me as Noella, as a person and as a brand, are really phenomenal. You know, when I go to deliver a speech, I have a team helping me to write, uh, helping me to be on time and booking my flight. So I want people to really understand this is, you cannot do it your, yourself. And I'd like to thank you very much indeed for sharing uh, your amazing story with us. Thank you, Noella. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for listening. For more on this podcast, head to workall.co where you can find out how you can get happier at work.